Well, good morning from Huntington Beach. Wherever you may be scattered at, wherever you're being tested right now, I want to invite you to open up the Bible with me and turn to the book of 1 Peter, and we are going to hear from our Father in heaven down here on earth today. Are you ready to do some Bible study with me here today? This is real, genuine Bible study we're about to do. Okay, you can't do this while you're cooking your breakfast. You can't do this while you're playing around on other devices. You can't do this while you're hanging with your kids. What I'm about to tell you right now is not something that you can just kind of hear a little bit, relate to, and feel good about yourself for the rest of the day. This is the very Word of God. This comes from heaven. Everything here you can't relate to unless you have a relationship with God. This Word, this text demands your full and undivided attention. We're going to look today at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 21. And you can download the worksheet from compasshb.com slash live. You can print it up. You can take notes. But here's the thing. You don't just need to hear this sermon. You don't just need to take notes on this sermon. You need to think this sermon. You need to gird up the loins of your mind. You need to be sober-minded. That's where we came from. We're thinking and setting our hope fully on the future grace in the face of Jesus. And here's how you and I are going to live until Jesus comes back. Is he back right now? Well, if he hasn't come back, then here's how you need to live. Like if you're distracted right now, you're going to have to watch this sermon again. You might have to watch this sermon again just because you need to watch it again. You've got to go to your fellowship group and talk about it. You might need to send me an email with questions. Talk to your friend and ask them some questions. You've got to know this so much that you could live it. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 21. I'm going to read it for us. And out of respect for God's Word, I'm going to ask if everybody will stand up for our Scripture reading here today. Yes, I'm talking to you, and I'm asking you to give this text your full and undivided attention. Let us stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's pay attention to every word. We're going to get into the Greek words. We're going to look up cross-references. We're going to find out what it's like to have a Father who's in heaven. This is starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. That's the reading of God's word. Please go ahead and have your seat. And notice that last line. Your faith and hope, where are they? They're in God. We're talking about your relationship with God. And we've already been learning some great things from 1 Peter. We've been learning about the hope that we have, about the faith that's going to be tested and proven, in our long-distance relationship with Jesus, and then we learned last week about the grace that is yours and the grace that is coming in the future. And what it says here is all of that hope and faith and grace, that all brings you into a relationship with God. And what we have in this text that we just read, that we're going to go through now together, is one of the greatest descriptions of what it means to have a relationship with God in all of the Bible. Okay, so that's one of our favorite things to say, that Christianity is not a religion, it is a what? 
It's a relationship. Okay, well, what does that mean? Because let me just tell you, there is nothing casual about your relationship with your Father in heaven. We, that's, a, that's a trendy word right now. It's casual. We, we like to say that around here. It, it's basic. It's casual. That's what the cool kids are saying these days. There's nothing basic. There's nothing casual about your relationship with your Father because he is in heaven and you are here on earth. And that is something totally different than us, to be in heaven. Not anything that you and I can relate to. Something we're going to have to learn to think about. See, uh, I, I got to go to this exciting event in my life. My wife, Krista, and I, we got to go to a live recording of a Matt Redman worship album. And I, I've shared about this before because for me, it's like, it's like I'm geeking out about it. It's like one of the coolest things. I've been listening to Matt Redman's music. I've been worshiping with him for basically all of my adult life. To be able to be there when he's recording a brand new set of songs it was awesome, and I was paying attention to all the interviews he did, all the speaking engagements he had, and one of the things he said is, we don't think about heaven enough. We don't think about God on his throne enough. If you open your Bible and you go to Isaiah 6, and you see the seraphim are saying, holy, 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 and then you open your Bible and you go to Revelation 4, and you see what they're saying, and here on earth... Thousands of years of time have gone by, but in heaven they're still on the same word, holy, holy, holy. Evangelic creatures and saints of old are bowing down and casting down crowns because they're so overwhelmed with the holiness of God and you and I are living down here not even thinking about Him being holy, then we don't really have a good relationship with God. Because the word they're all focused on when you get to see him, when you're in his, his presence, when you behold him in the splendor of his glory, is you say, holy, holy, holy. Is that what you're thinking about God in your relationship with him? That's what you're going to see in him. When you get to behold him. And your breath will be taken away, just like it is with the angels and the saints. Where they cry out, holy, holy, holy. So look what it says here in verse 15. It says, as he who called you is holy. This is a thought that we must have about God. This is the high view of God, that God is holy. Well, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, we've been going through 1 Peter for a few weeks. Hopefully, you're, you're studying, you're reading. We read through it. You've been going through it with us each week. This is the first it is written we've gotten to here. This is the first time he's directly quoted other Scripture. There might be a lot of references, a lot of allusions, but here he says it is written. So he's writing to the scattered, to the tested, to the Christians in a time of trial that they're living in. And what's the first scripture that he quotes to New Covenant, blood-bought, Christian people? Leviticus, everybody. That's what he quotes. That's his go-to. Let's encourage those beleaguered Christians out there. Hey, everybody, remember what Leviticus says? How many people have been encouraging one another with Leviticus through coronavirus? He's still holy, and we need to be holy. See, if you thought about it like this, if you thought, I'm going to heaven today, see, you would think, well, that's a place that's other than me. That's a place that's otherworldly. That's a place where there's no sin. How is somebody like me going to go into a place that's holy? That's what we learned the book of Leviticus was all about. There's now a holy tabernacle in the midst of the camp. There's a place where God is going to dwell among his people, but he's holy. And so here's all these different ways you've got to approach him in sacrifices and cleanness and in the holiness of your conduct. You've got to be holy. If you're going to dwell with God, if you're going to have a relationship with God, then you better be holy because the only way that anybody comes to God is he is holy. And so you got to be holy too. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 20, everybody, and let's remind ourselves a little bit. That's right. That's right. Grab your Bible and go to Leviticus. 
Uh, or maybe some of you still remember how you realize, wow, this is actually awesome scripture. I know a few people it became their favorite book of the Bible. Now that's revival right there when people are loving Leviticus. Well, go to chapter 20. And let's just remember that God was describing for us the land vomiting nations out because of their abominations and how he was calling his people in Israel to be set apart from all the other nations. There's a good definition of being holy, to be set apart. You can't be like everybody else. you got to be like God, your Father in heaven. And so look what he says here in Leviticus chapter 20. And we're going to just jump straight to the end of the chapter, verse 22. This is Leviticus 20, 22. And this is really a, a line of reasoning that he started in, in chapter 18 when he described those nations. And he's been saying this now through 18 and 19 and 20. And then he gets to this conclusion. You shall therefore keep all my statutes, all my rules, and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. If you don't want to end up like every everybody else, then you got to be set apart. They're going to be vomited out of the land. They're going to be judged, all of those nations, for their abominations. If you want to be set apart from everybody else, well, look what he says here. Verse 25, you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable. Here's this whole idea of uncleanness and cleanness Get to it, verse 26. You shall be holy to me. You have to be set apart to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? It means you have been separated. You've been separated from your own sin, from the way of the world, from the dominion of Satan. You have been set apart now to be one of God's people. That's what he's saying here. You can't be like the other nations. At this time, they had to be really concerned about cleanliness and uncleanliness because God, I mean, Leviticus is like going to heaven. It's like God's right there in the camp. You're now in the presence of holiness. Everything now has to be clean and set apart about you. If you're going to have a relationship with God, you got to be holy as he is holy. Now, I wonder, if we took a poll, use a word to describe your relationship with God. If we did that poll right here at Compass HB, if we somehow had the technology, everybody on your phone right now, here's your options, A, B, C, D. What word would you tap on to describe your relationship with God? Is the number one word that comes to your mind that God's holy and therefore I need to be holy? Because that's where Peter goes. You got a relationship with your Father in heaven, so be holy as he is holy. There's nothing basic. There's nothing casual. It's set apart. It's clean. I mean, literally, God says, I have separated you. That's what it means to be one of the people of our Father in heaven. It is written, be holy, for I am holy. Peter doesn't think he needs to explain the book of Leviticus. He's assuming that people know the book of Leviticus and that they understand that that command to be holy applies to them as new covenant Christians. Okay, now with that idea from Leviticus of holiness, let's go back to 1 Peter. And he's going to give us here in this text two words that are going to help us think through what does it mean to be holy. That's our, our big picture. That's, that's really our high view, that God is holy and I've been separated to be like God. That's my relationship with God. Okay, But now look here in verse 14, it's going to say, as obedient children, so this is 1 Peter 1, 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, So let's talk about that word passion, passions. Okay, I'm going to put that word up here on the screen, and we're going to get into the Greek. And the Greek here of passions is epithumia, and it means strong desire, or it means lust. Now, I, I, we use the word lust sometimes, a lot of times, in, in kind of a way to refer to sexual immorality. But this word is not limited to that. This word means you have a drive. You have a strong desire, and you used to have these passions that were according to your former ignorance. 
before you were adopted into the family of God, before you were one of his obedient children, before you were separated and set apart into relationship with God, you, had, you were ignorant in your former life of a relationship with God, and you had these passions that drove you, these strong desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, the deeds of the flesh. That's how you used Yeah, don't be conformed to that anymore. What it means to be holy? Well, we're done with the old passions. That's what we're putting off. That's what we're leaving behind. And then look at the next verse. Verse 15, he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. This is a key word. Anastrophe. Let's get this word up on the screen so you can see it here. Anastrophe. Manner of life or pattern. Okay, This is going to be, again, a key word here in 1 Peter. These are two words you're going to need to know. Passions and conduct. You can follow them in English, but we're going to have to even look at them in the Greek. Conduct is going to be mentioned multiple times in our text today. So this is not just one thing you did. This is now we're summarizing your lifestyle, the pattern of all the things you do, the manner and the way that you conduct yourself, the way that you decide to live your life. All the things need to be holy in the way that you conduct yourself. So you're no longer living in your passions, but you are now being conducting yourself in a way that is holy. Okay, now he's really going to summarize this whole idea in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's jump forward in 1 Peter, and let's look at chapter 2, 11 and 12. Find it with me, read it with me. Beloved, I urge you, I encourage you, Perikaleo, I call alongside of you as sojourners and exiles, as people who don't really belong here on planet earth because you've got a relationship with your Father in heaven. He says this, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So even as beloved people, Christian people, you still can have a battle going on in your soul with passions that you need to say no to and abstain from and reject. And then it says this, verse 12, keep your con- have your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Okay, you, so you have to abstain from the passions, and you have to have this honorable conduct, this manner of life, this pattern of holiness is what he's saying. So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's put those two verses now up on the screen, and you can see there the key words are going to come up, passions and conduct. So if we're going to be holy as God is holy, that means saying no to the passions, saying no to the strong desires, and then conducting ourselves in a, in a pattern, in a manner of life that goes along with God's holiness. Be holy in all your conduct. So we get into this dynamic that is so important for every one of us in our sanctification, in our process of being made holy, more like Jesus, less like us. We're being set apart from who we used to be for the purpose of God working in our life. We always have to put things off and put things on. Say no to your passions and make sure you conduct, you have this kind of conduct, holy conduct. This is the Christian life. If you're not thinking about the fact that you have a relationship with a God who is holy and you can conduct yourself in a holy way, then that is not a good relationship with God. And we've got to change that today. We've got to think of him primarily as they do in heaven, as holy, and we've got to hear the command that you can't be a part of the passions that everybody else is living in. you got to be separated, set apart, and you got to conduct yourself in a holy way. So today, we're going to look at three reasons to be holy. If, you, if you've got the handout, if you're taking notes, we got three points coming at you, three points that have to do with your Father, and they are all reasons in your relationship with God that you should be holy. So we've just explained what the goal is. The goal this week is you and I saying no to our passions 
and conducting ourselves in a holy way. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty, what are the passions that used to drive you before you were saved? Abstain from them. What are the things that God's commanding you to do as a Christian? Make them your manner of life. Make them your pattern. Okay, but here's the why. Here's, now we're going to focus primarily on the motivation. Three different ways to think about our relationship with our Father in heaven that should motivate us towards this pursuit of holiness. Okay, so look back at verse 14 and notice how it's framing it here as obedient children. Before it ever says, be holy, it reminds you, and this is what we even saw in the Ten Commandments, that before God gave them commands, he reminded them, I brought you out of Egypt. You're my people, I'm your God. Commands, whenever God expects us to do something, it's always in the context that you already have a relationship with God. So you're going to obey God, you're going to do what God says. Whatever this book says, whatever his scripture says, you need to conduct yourself that way. Why? Because you're one of his kids. And you want to obey your Father in heaven. Look what it says in, in verse 17. If you call on him as Father... That's that's referring to our secret place prayer. That's referring to how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So if you pray, if you have a relationship with God, if he's your Father, then the idea here is, well, because of that relationship, because you know one who is holy, that's how he describes himself, that's how they describe him in heaven, like Father, like son or like daughter. If that's who I've now been separated into relationship with and he is holy, then I should be holy. So this is a very simple point, okay? The first reason to be holy, number one, is your father is, okay? So write down that word is if you're taking notes on the handout, all right? That, it's that straightforward. Now, now, this is not something you can relate to. You were not born holy. You, you, you don't have this like natural, your default position as a human being was not holiness. Your default position before you got saved was sin. So this is now learned behavior that we need to conduct ourselves in. Okay, you, you, you're going to have to study passages like this. You're going to have to learn to think this way. You're going to have to learn to act this way. It's going to take a pursuit of holiness. And what is your motivation? That's your father. He's holy. He's the one who adopted you in his love. He's the one who bought you with the blood of Jesus Christ, like we're going to get to here in a minute. Do you have a relationship with God? Well, that's your motivation. It's personal between you and a holy God. See, we like to talk about our personal relationship with our father. We like to call him Abba and Daddy and cry out to him when we're in need. But a lot of times we don't really think about who God is. We just think about who we want God to be to us. This is not about you. This is about him. And you are going to be there, Lord willing, in heaven. You're going to be bowing down as low as you can go, and you're going to be crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you and I get to heaven, we're still going to be using that same one word. And so the more you know God, the more you love God, you would want to be like him. The more you pursue him, the more you would want to represent him. The more you would value the things that he values and thinks the way that he thinks. So let's talk about your relationship with God. Has it mostly been about what you receive from God or is it about you becoming more like him and being more about his name being set apart and made holy? Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Let's all go to 2 Corinthians. Just a few pages over to the left from 1 Peter here. 2 Corinthians. We're going to go to the end of chapter 6, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 is where we're going to start because Paul's making a strong point here to the Corinthians. He's making a strong point about being separate, about separating from those who are still in sin, those who are still living in their passions. If you're going to have a relationship with God, then you're going to be not of this world. 
Remember, when, when Jesus prayed to the Father for us, not when he taught us how to pray in Matthew 6, but when he prayed in John 17, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. Separate them. Right? He said, we're going to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's what Paul's getting to here. He's saying, hey, as Christians, there needs to be such a distinction, like darkness and light between the way we live and the way the people who don't know God, the difference of our relationship with God changes the way we conduct ourselves. And here he quotes some scripture, and he's really doing a mashup of some greatest hits of the law, prophets, and writings here. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We have God's Holy Spirit is in you right now. The holiness of God, His holy presence is in you. Therefore, as God said, listen to these lines. Here's God speaking. I will make my dwelling among them. Immediately, we should be thinking of Leviticus, Him tabernacling among us and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, If you want to be one of God's people, here's the conclusion. Therefore, go out from their midst. If you belong to God who is holy, you cannot belong to the passions of this world. So go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's have a little DTR right now, everybody. Let's define the relationship that we have with God. He gets to define it, and he defines being a son or a daughter, him being our father, as us being separate, just like he is, set apart. And then he says this, or here's actually what Paul writes in conclusion to that mashup of these awesome passages of Scripture. He says, since we have these promises... Since you have a God who wants to be your God, who's calling you to be separate, who says, I will be a father to you. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So here, there's an action step here. A big response to the promise of having a relationship with God is that you would then say no to all the passions, cleanse yourself from all of that sin, and that you would have this work of holiness that God's doing, that you would want to bring it to completion. And then it says something very interesting here, very controversial in the church age, in uh, American Christianity, in, in, in Southern California faith. This is controversial right here. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Hey, can we talk about the fear of God for a second? Are you... As someone saved by Jesus, already having an inheritance in heaven, already forgiven for all of your sin, are you, as a Christian, today, supposed to fear God? What's your answer to that question? Seems like Paul's saying that here in 2 Corinthians 7.1. He's saying there's actually going to be a connection between being holy and fearing God. Oh, maybe that might, might be why we don't hear a lot of people talking about holiness or we don't see a lot of people living out holiness because we really don't think we should fear God that much these days. Because what really is there to be afraid of if we're already saved? Well, then how come when Paul wants to talk about being separate and being holy, he goes to the fear of God when he's writing a letter to a church? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and you'll see he makes this same connection here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And, and you've got to see this because it goes right from him being our father to fearing him. This is really important that you have a fear of God. Even though he's your father who adopted you in his love and he cares for you completely, I mean, he's taking care of the flowers, he's taking care of the birds, and you're of so much more value to God than they are. He loves you, he cares for the most intimate details of your life. Should you still be afraid of your father? Let's see what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
then have this conduct, this pattern, this manner of life, conduct yourselves with, key word, what does it say there, everybody? Fear throughout the time of your exile. If he's your father, you should conduct yourself with what? Fear. So if you, in your mind, have disassociated father and fear, well, we got Paul in 2 Corinthians, and we got Peter here in chapter 1, who are clearly writing to Christians like us, and they're saying father and fear is a way that we should all learn how to think. So let's get real personal right now, and let's talk about how you cannot base your view of God, your father in heaven, on who your father was here on earth, okay? If, if your idea of a father comes from the man that you know here on earth or knew here on earth, you got to rethink what it means that you have a father in heaven because I guarantee you, your father in heaven is not like your father here on earth. So a lot of people are bringing what we might refer to as daddy issues. They're bringing their thoughts about what it means to be a father to the text rather than letting the text tell them what it means to have a father who is in heaven. So we, had, we have people with all kinds of relationships with dads represented in our fellowship of believers here at Compass HB. I mean, we have some people whose dads really abandoned them at an early age and they never really had a relationship with their dad. We had other people who had a great, loving relationship with their dad, but their dad was what we might call a bad dad. He was a pushover. He never disciplined them. He loved them, but the love from that dad looked like allowing them to do whatever they wanted to do. Well, you have a father who loves you. You should never question whether he loves you or not. He adopted you into the family solely because he chose to love you. He actually gave his one and only son in your place. So surely he loves you. If he's given his son, what more could he give? He loves you, but it says you should be afraid of him because he's not going to just let you get away with things because you're his kid, because he's too lazy to discipline you, because he doesn't really want to like, follow up with you about how you're doing and he wants to sit on the couch. That's not our father in heaven. No, he judges impartially according to how you live, how you conduct yourself. Even as Christians, it says, you should conduct yourselves in fear. While you live down here on earth and you have a holy father in heaven, there should be an attitude, not a fear of judgment. No, perfect love casts out all fear of judgment. Not a fear of condemnation, because there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, but a fear of your father, of who he is in his holiness. See, so few dads are really representing this. It's hard down here on earth to find a dad who there's no question that he loves his kids, but his kids aren't getting away with anything at that house. He disciplines. That's what love is supposed to look like from a dad to his kids is there's instruction and there's discipline. It's hard to find a dad like that here on earth. But let me tell you here today, that's exactly who your father is in heaven, no matter who your dad was here on earth. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. This is a, a few pages, just a few pages to the left. Don't go too far or you'll miss it. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 5 is going to quote Proverbs 3 here, and then it's going to expound on this idea of a father who loves his kids so that he disciplines them. He corrects their behavior. He takes whatever is out of line with the standard of conduct, and he corrects it, and he instructs them to conduct themselves in holiness. Look what it says. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. Okay, so in the, in the Proverbs here, and as Hebrews is going to go on to say, 
discipline and love is, a, is what a father does. They go together. If they're separated in your mind, we've got we to gotta renew our mind through the Scripture. We've got to learn to think right. There's a love and a discipline that go hand in hand from a father to a son. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, obviously, the writer of Hebrews maybe wasn't writing at our time because there are plenty of sons that don't seem disciplined by their father these days. But that's the idea of what dads are supposed to do. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, This is something we're supposed to know, but a lot of us maybe don't. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, our Father in heaven, disciplines us for our good, that we may share His theme of the day, everybody, that we may share His what? Say it like you mean it, everybody. Holiness. Your dad in heaven wants you to be holy here on earth. And if you're not holy, he's going to discipline you. He's going to correct you. He cares about your conduct to be holy before him. And because he's that kind of dad, and because he loves you in that kind of a way, you should have fear for your father in heaven. Let's get this down for number two. Your father is still someone to fear. That's your dad who's adopted you in his love. And, and yes, he loves you, but he will love you by disciplining you. You, you, you just wait till your father gets home. If you heard those words growing up, If that had meaning to you, if you knew your dad loved you, you knew your dad wasn't going to kick you out of the house, he wasn't going to make you sleep in the doghouse. No, your dad loved you, but when he got home, if you weren't acting the right way, he was going to discipline you. Well, that's what it's talking about right here. Just because he loves you as your father doesn't mean you do whatever you want or you just think he's going to let you get away with it without correcting you, without disciplining you. No, that's what love from a father actually looks like. So I don't know what your relationship is like with your dad here on earth, but I can tell you what your relationship is like with your father in heaven, and you need to continue as a Christian today. You need to fear God. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? The fear of God is still alive and well as a motivation within our hearts. Yes, we we are not afraid of judgment. We have lost all the guilt and the shame of our sin. We know that we are forgiven. We're not questioning if we have a relationship with our Father, but since we have a relationship with our Father, our dad isn't somebody you mess with. You don't think you can just do something and get away with it, not in our Father's house, not in our Father's world. That's not how he operates. If you're going to call on him as father, if you're going to dare to go into the secret place of the one who is holy in heaven, and you're going to say to him, my father in heaven, well, you better call on your father with fear during your time down here. Because he will discipline you if you give in to those passions. And he has an expectation, a commandment, a standard that you will conduct yourself and be holy as he is holy because that's the way his family works. That's the way his obedient children live. So we need to connect here today. This is why you might need to study this. This is why you might even need to look up other verses. If you think the fear of God is a bad thing, the Bible disagrees with you, and you need to connect In your mind today, father and fear, those two concepts can go together. They do go together in our Father in heaven, and that's the way you're going to want to think about him, to conduct yourself in holiness. Look what it says here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Just going down a few verses there, after it talks about us sharing his holiness, it says, strive, pursue for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you want to see the Lord? Do you want to behold His glory? Well, there's only one way to have a relationship with our Father in heaven. 
be holy as he is holy. So you got to strive. You got to pursue. Holiness is not going to come naturally down here on planet Earth. No, we're going to have to say no to the natural passions. And we're going to have to conduct ourselves and be holy. Okay, so let's think this through. Why do I want to be holy? Because I've got a relationship with God who loves me. Why do I want to be holy? Well, because the Father I have a relationship with, he's not okay with me sinning in my life. He's going to discipline me. He's going to correct me. He's not just going to let anything go. Okay, but now let's get to what might be the most profound motivation. Go back to 1 Peter, just a few pages to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1, and now we're picking it up in verse 18. And these might be familiar words, but don't, don't lose me here. Because there's something that gets lost in translation in this passage that we need to really draw out of the text as we're doing some Bible study. So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. That's where we're going to get our third reason to be holy. And it says knowing. Here's a way that we're supposed to be thinking. Here's something that we're supposed to be relating to in our, in our relationship with our Father in heaven. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what you need to understand okay, is that there is a sense of, of value in these words. And if you were reading it in Greek, if you were reading Koine Greek, that Peter wrote this to the scattered and tested Christians to encourage them in their suffering. If you and I were reading this in Greek, that idea of value would leap off the page. Okay, But I need you now to see it here in English. You need to write down that word ransomed or circle that word ransomed. It means to be redeemed or it means to be purchased or it means to be bought. So you would actually need to have, if you're, we might use ransomed or redeemed and kind of think they're just church words, or they're just kind of biblical words. But see, people at that time, they would have literally thought of someone like they were maybe in slavery and somebody actually paid money. They paid something of value. Maybe they bartered. They gave something of value to purchase that person's freedom. Like you were a slave and now I'm going to pay money or I'm going to give something of value so that you could be free from being a slave. That's the idea of that word. Like there's a sense of value involved. That's why immediately it, it, it says there in verse 18, it, it says not with perishable things such as silver or gold, which again, we might miss that because we don't maybe buy things with silver and gold on the daily. We might not be going to the market with our pieces of silver and gold. I mean, who's using loose change anymore these days, right? We're paying for most things with the chip in our card these days, right? Well, no, we're talking about a transaction taking place. Don't you know? know God bought you that's what he's saying here like don't you remember when you were in jail when you had done the crime and you were about to do the time and you had one phone call and you called on God and they put a really high bail out on you and he paid for your bail so you could go free that's what he's saying here he's not just saying something spiritual he's talking about there was a real transaction that took place now, there's another thing you need to see here in verse 18, because it says when you were ransomed, redeemed, purchased, bought, that kind of an idea. When God bought you, look what he bought you from, from the futile ways. Okay, now, when, can you write down, if you're taking notes, futile ways, another way you could translate that in the Greek is worthless conduct. Okay, ways is the same word we've been looking at for conduct. So we've already read conduct two times here in our text. Well, here it is a third time, but for some reason they used a different English word. But he's saying that your conduct, when you were living in your passions, you know the old way? That was futile ways. That was worthless conduct. Your conduct was worthless, and yet God came and bought you when you were worth nothing. He came and valued you. That's what it's saying here. 
Your conduct brought nothing to God. It was worthless. It was futile. You know what you inherited from your forefathers? You know what you really got from your dad here on earth who got it from his dad and mom before him is you got sinful nature. That's what you got. You got worthless conduct. That's what we all get here on planet earth as human beings. And yet here's what God did is he came and bought you and he bought you with something not worldly. He didn't spend gold or silver. I mean, that would be amazing even if he bought us with some kind of physical thing. But what he actually bought us with here, it was physical, but it transcends that understanding. Verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. Like your soul, your soul was so lost, your conduct was so worthless, there was nothing here on earth that could save you, and here God shows up, and what is God willing to pay for your soul? The precious blood of His Son. His real Son. His one and only Son. The one who dwelt with Him In eternity past, the one that he kept saying over and over, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That son's blood is what it cost God to purchase your soul. The perfect, righteous, holy, it says, precious here precious because there's nothing else like it it's singular it's unique there's only one righteous thing that could be offered to purchase you like a sacrifice like that of a lamb without blemish or spot see i don't i don't think we always fully understand today the definition of what it means that there was a sacrifice And we know he's already quoted. He's already thrown down. Since it is written, and he's already referred to Leviticus here in this flow of thought. So now when he gets to like a lamb, with a lamb that has no defect, a lamb that is perfect, like this perfectly righteous lamb, like that kind of a lamb, like a sacrifice, he's taking them back to the book of Leviticus. And if you were with us, When we studied Leviticus, we saw that if we have a relationship with God, we need to be holy as He is holy. But the way that you get a relationship with God is through atonement. That's what we learned. And the book of Leviticus begins with these chapters where they describe different kinds of sacrifices. Chapters that the church in America makes fun of as boring and hard to read chapters to begin the book of Leviticus, but chapters that explain what Jesus did for you. So you're supposed to know that they would go up to the tabernacle, to the holy presence of God, and they would bring that lamb, that perfect lamb without any spot or blemish, and they would bring that lamb up there to the tabernacle, and they would hold out that lamb as a sacrifice, and they would put their hand on the head of the lamb, and their hand on the head of the lamb means really my sin is now on this sacrifice. And as they put their hand on the head of the lamb, they would then kill the lamb by slitting its throat, and the blood of the lamb would be shed. And it's like this lamb has to die because of me and my sin. That's what it's saying. Jesus was the lamb His blood was shed, and that was the cost of your soul. There's a motivation right there to be holy. If you choose later today, as a Christian person, to go back to your old passions, what you are saying is that my worthless conduct has a higher value to me than the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for my soul. It's a statement of value. It's a statement of what you esteem, what matters to you, what your life 
is about. You say you believe in Jesus? Well, here's how we find out whether you believe in Jesus or, or not, really. Does his death, does his blood have such a value that it makes you realize, I don't have to live worthless conduct anymore. I don't have to live in my passions anymore. I can be holy because Jesus' precious blood has cleansed me from all of that sin. It's forgiven me of all of that sin. It's made a payment. And when Jesus made that payment, he said to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. Now this picture right here of a lamb with your hand on it because your sin is going on the lamb and you have to kill the lamb because it's dying for your sin. That picture is what God wants everybody on planet earth to understand that picture. He wants everybody on planet earth. That's why he put it in Leviticus. But even in your mind, go back further. Go to the book of Exodus. Go to the Passover. What is the symbol of God delivering his people out of the slavery of Egypt? Out of all the passions of the other nations. What is he going to deliver you out with? Well, you're going to sacrifice a lamb. And you're going to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And anybody who puts the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of the Lord, when it comes in to judge, it will pass over your house and it won't kill what? Your firstborn son. Like God is just stacking up pictures for us to see what he's going to do with his one and only son to pay for your soul so that you would value it, esteem it, and it would motivate you to live holy because look what it cost the father. It cost him the blood of his son. Let's go back even further. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 22 when for 10 chapters we've been waiting for a promised son, and here he is, the son of the promise. When Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, God blessed him with Isaac. And he's going to be the son that leads to the nation, that leads to the land, that leads to the fulfillment of all the promises of the covenant of God with Abraham. And God says to Abraham, go take your one and only son, your son who you love, and kill him. Sacrifice him to me. See, now when you and I read that story, if you're a parent, if you have a son, I mean, that's, that's just a tough story. That's a tough, that's a tough thing. To, why would God ask him to do that? How could I, as a father, look at my son, my son whom I love, and I, I'm so blessed I don't have my one and only son, I have two sons. How could I look at my son and think that I would sacrifice him, that I would kill him, that I would end his life. Like what possible purpose could there be? What possible motivation could there be for any father to want to sacrifice his son? Especially, you got to get in the mind of Abraham. This son is the key to everything, to the inheritance, to the nation, to all of the promises. I mean, that's how the Jewish people thought. Like it was, life wasn't even really about you. Life was about what you would pass on to your son. That was the way of thinking. It was all about the son's inheritance. You know, even to this day, the Jewish people, they really know how to celebrate their sons. When their son comes of age, I don't know if you've ever been to a bar mitzvah here in the States, but if you get to go to Jerusalem with us, and you get to see them celebrate these boys as they're like 13, becoming a man, as they're like making this transition into manhood. I mean, they know how to get down. For that, that boy becoming a man, that birthday, that celebration, I mean, it's like you're at the temple, and it's like they hire a band for every kid, and they're like blowing horns and hitting drums. I mean, it's it's music you can boogie to. And it's like everybody's there wearing their nicest clothes because today this boy is becoming a man. And I mean, th that celebration that they have for their sons when they come of age, that blows away anything we're doing here in the States. I mean, th that is an awesome thing to see. When my son turned 13, I think we got some friends. We went to the park, played some b-ball, and ate some Little Caesars. Didn't quite compare to what they're doing there among the Jews to celebrate their son. And the father sticks it to Abraham in Genesis 22, and he says, take your son, your one and only son, your son who you love. 
and I want you to travel for three days, and I want you to go to this specific mount, Moriah, and I want you to kill him. And the whole time, Abraham, by faith, wakes up early in the morning. Abraham's going. Isaac's like, what's going on here, Dad? Where's the sacrifice? I don't see the sacrifice. Abraham's like, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. I mean, you're reading this. The tension is mounting. You're feeling it. Is Abraham going to kill his one and only son? And everything in you is saying how messed up that would be for a father to kill his one and only son. And that's exactly what happened to purchase your soul. God put that picture. He wanted to create that feeling in you so you could understand just a little bit of what it was going to cost him to buy you. And so when you and I say, yeah, I know you sent your son I know you're my father who adopted me in your love. I know you're holy in heaven and I should fear you. And you had to kill your son to pay for my soul. But I would rather still go back to my worthless conduct. What kind of a relationship is that with your father in heaven? When you would rather sin than celebrate what his son has done. When you don't value the precious blood of Jesus that purchased you, that bought you, that redeemed you, so you no longer have to live in worthless conduct. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer a criminal. Bail has been posted. The price has been paid. And you can go free. And you can now live in your Father's way, in holy conduct, because the blood of Jesus actually matters in your life. Reason number three, that you should be holy. You're going to have to be your father's apostrophe S because we're talking now about your father's son sacrificed his blood for you. That's number three. Your father's son sacrificed his blood for you. See, this right here, verses 18 and 19, this is a statement of value. This is where you find out what does it really mean for you? What does it really matter to you that your father in heaven had to kill his one and only son whom he loved to buy you out of sin so that righteous blood could be shed to pay for that judgment could be done and and, and the, the sacrifice could be made to atone for your sin. Jesus takes all that you deserve and you receive now the title of son or daughter. You get now adopted into the family. The father treats his real son like you should be treated and he's treating you now like Jesus. And he would look at you and he would say, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. What is the value of that to you? You find out what it really matters. That you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot when it comes down to do you live holy as he is holy? Do you put off those passions and abstain from them? And are you holy in all your conduct? That's what it means to have a relationship with our Father in heaven. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus. And Father, we just want to confess to you that we have been valuing our sin maybe way too much and not valuing the blood of Jesus nearly enough. So I pray that today you would teach us from your word. I pray that today, through this word going forth, and yes, Father, I know we all wish we were here right now. We all wish we could hear the amens. We all wish we could feel the conviction of sin. Yes, Father, I know that right now we wish we were gathering together, but I pray that even as this goes out on a video, that your word would go forth with the power of the Holy Spirit, 
that there would be profound conviction of sin if we are not walking in a holy way as you are holy, and that today, in all of our hearts, in all of our minds, that the precious blood of the spotless lamb would be highly valued, that we would esteem Jesus Christ, that we would want to lift his name high, that we would say there is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, the perfect and precious lamb, the holy one. And so the holy one died that we might be redeemed. Therefore, we should live holy as you are holy. Father, we just want to confess that down here on earth, we don't think about holiness enough. So change our thoughts. Make us more like you. Let us think as you are in the splendor of your holiness. And let us appreciate what it costs for sinners like us to have a personal relationship with the holy God like you. It costs the precious blood of your one and only son, your son whom you love. So let this be a day where we remember the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We remember that he had to die so that our soul could be purchased. And let us highly value the sacrifice of Jesus so that it leads to holy living. God, please, please, Father, I'm asking you to do a work that only you can do, to use your word to transform and renew our minds, to change our lives, to stir up our souls, that we might experience a revival from the Bible, that we might have a pursuit of holiness, that people on earth might live like you are in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.